Welcome back to another episode of Baraza Sessions. Um, this is the second episode that we are having as a podcast. My name is Christine Mongai, curator of Baraza Media Lab, and I'm very excited to have Wanjiro Koinange on the podcast today. Wanjiro is the author of the novel The Havoc of Choice and is also the co-founder of BookBank. And she'll tell us more about BookBank later. Welcome, Shiro. Thank you, Christine. I'm delighted to be here. Yes. Um, this gorgeous space of yours. Oh, thank you. So thank you. This is Baraza Media Lab, where we do nice things in a cute setting. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> for it. Yeah. Um, so I'm really, really excited to have you on our podcast today um, to talk about this novel, but also to talk about um, life around this novel, what it meant to live these events. Um, as Kenyans, we all lived them. If we were alive at that time, we lived them in one way or another. Um, and even for those who are not very aware of what was going on, we carry the legacy of this time with us. Um, the Havoc of Choice is set in the months and weeks around the 2007 general election, which was a very tense, tumultuous, violent, tragic time in Kenya's history. Um, and we'll talk about the book setting and, and why you know, it was set at that time, the decision to tell that story in that particular moment. But where I'd like us to begin, Shiro, is for you to tell us, why is this the story that only you could tell? Mm. Here at Baraza, we ask people that question a lot. What is it about your life, your story, um, the things that life has brought you away that made you the person to tell this story? Wow, you started with a... A deep one and one that I love and I think I think about a lot, to be honest. Um, I don't think that I'm the only one who can tell this story. As you said, it's a Kenyan story. It's, a, it's something we all lived and experienced. But the reason why I decided to tell this story is because in 2012, I moved away. I moved to Cape Town. Um, I was going to do my master's. I had to get away from Nairobi. I'd suffered loss and I just I couldn't be in the city anymore. So I went to Cape Town to pursue my master's in writing. And as soon as I would talk and see that I'm Kenyan, guys would be like, oh, shame, are you guys okay? And I'd be like, oh, yeah, we're okay. And this is five years on, right? Right. Um, so and I just keep hearing this question, like, how are you after 07? You guys must be so sad. You must be, how are you dealing? And I'm just like, we've accepted and moved on. That's what we were told to do when we did it. And the it kept, Kenyan way. The Kenyan way. We know how to like, move on. We forget easily. Yeah. And we, but that's exactly what we did. And then because it kept coming up, and even I think in one of my grad school seminars, we had a whole session dedicated to, to the story that come out of conflict. I realized that it's not the people who are asking me that have a problem. And there's something wrong with the way that we were grieving, or, or not wrong, but incomplete, I guess is the right word. Incomplete, incomplete I like that. Yeah. And so the thing that I do when I, when I don't understand something is I throw myself into research. And let me tell you, for maybe nine months, I read every single thing I could about the post-election violence. And this is five years on when people were still processing. I think Dr. Joyce Nero said um, soon after, and I may, I may be misquoting her, but she said something about it would take about a decade for us to fully recognize what has happened during 07 and begin to like write about it. And this book is coming out 12 years on. 13 years on. So I think she's, she was completely right. And I think that the reason why I wrote this story is because when I finished reading about the loss and the, and the lack of, I guess, 
national grieving around this, the, the biggest violence we'd experienced since independence. And we just moved on. I was like, something's wrong. And, and I wanted to write about it as my own way of trying to understand what may have happened. And, and also just to tell guys, are we truly okay? Because I know every time we have an election, I go into like fetal position. I'm terrified and I want to grab my passport and run. And I won't run because this is my country and this is where my stuff is. And I, this is where I want to, to live. And because I'm, I know I'm not the only one who goes into like PTSD when we have another election, even if I wasn't directly affected in the way that some of the people in the book were, I know that we, we haven't addressed the, the loss and the, and the, and, and the, the violence, basically. We just haven't addressed it. And I hope that people would begin to think about it differently. Obviously, time, and I'm not saying that we need to like break down every time we have an election or kind of just like go all out in, in the grieving of it, but I think that there's an acknowledgement of a loss that we just haven't done. And that was what was 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 shocking to me. Um, and obviously, there's a proximity to politics that I've always had, being a Koinange in this country. My father was never a politician, but there was always someone in our family running for office. My grandfather was a politician. And even if I didn't ideally have that, that, that um, closeness to it, um, it was always in the periphery. It was always, every time you mention your name, you get a question about your, your, your connection to politics. And, right. and my mother was very deliberate in raising us as regular middle-class Nairobi children because she didn't want us growing up spoiled or growing up thinking that we were entitled to, to, to things because of the legacy my grandfather left us. And that obviously gave me a unique kind of point of view because I know what it's like to be in a political space that you don't want to be in because I've right. never, I don't like the limelight. And my father didn't either. But that's access that I thought was unique to me, and I thought I would use that for right. the story. Oh, and that, that explains the point of view of yes. the main characters in this book. Completely. Yes. Completely. Um, I was going to ask that, but I, I've, just, I've seen it now. <laughs> I've seen it. made sense right now. Yeah. I'd like us to go back to what you said about the months that you spent reading and researching around the election. Mm. Um, when we put this into context with our national language in the words of Yvonne O'War, yes. one of them being silence. silence. Um, it's becoming increasingly difficult as time goes on to find information, news stories, mm -hmm. that kind of stuff about particular events in Kenya's history. Mm -hmm. And I'm starting to consider the possibility that the archives are being shaped in a certain way or manipulated or scrubbed even. Mm. Um, and I'd like you to tell us about what your experience was in researching these stories. Okay. Because um, there are some stories, some photos, some images, which made an impression on me, but now I can't find I'd them. Find. So I'd, I'd just like you to tell us a little bit more about that. What was your experience mm. and how do you see the archive existing and not even as a static thing? in the Kenyan context, but as something that is very much up for grabs, yeah. depending on who's in power and what interest the archive serves. Oh my goodness, this is such a, a, a point of like pain for me, because I agree with you. I have no proof that these archives are being erased, but I did, um, I want to say 95% of the research for this book when I was living outside of Kenya. But at that point, I mean, nine months worth of reading was a lot of material. And my biggest regret today is that I saved, I saved all of these links on the server for my grad school then, and then graduated without having kind of downloaded it. And I'm still trying to get access to it because I, I thought about that um, doing edits because 
I had to go back and, and check my facts and be like, is this number correct and everything. And there are things that I, I remembered reading and I could I remembered writing down in my notebook that I couldn't find anymore. Mm-hmm. So I, I know nothing surprises me about the way that we do things in this country and just especially around memory and like what memory can can trigger. And the fact that all of these histories are up for grabs, anybody can shape what we remember. That's why we're told to forget so viciously, accept and move on. Because that way, if you if you move on and you don't really give thought to what's happening, then you could happen again. And, and, it, and it, it happens again because you, when you don't remember, you don't ask questions. And when you don't ask questions, you don't fight for judgment and for justice as well. So I really think that it, it, I didn't struggle at the point at that at that point to get information because I didn't even really know what I was looking for. I was really just trying to see what the landscape of the violence looked like. There's a lot of foreign reporting that I relied on. Yes. Um, a lot of the reports that I drew numbers from were, were local reports from the Truth, Justice, and Reconciliation Commission. Whatever human rights organizations were reporting in the area, I relied heavily on that because I wanted data that was not obviously skewed. Um, there's less and less of it around, which I think this book is is a really good, important thing to just kind of it's it's two weeks of of the of the of the of a, of a hundred day period or over a hundred day period, but I think that the more we kind of think about how we can harvest personal memories from 07, then we begin to kind of shape um, what, what they look like in future. Or draw a map around like this thing was not spontaneous. <laughs> Nothing about it was spontaneous. Um, but there are all of these things that I think are tied to justice. So that is the reason why we're told to forget or asked to forget or, 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 or told that remembering where you want to remember. Is it going to bring, bring things back? Why do you want to do the painful work? And it's painful work. <laughs> You've read the book. You know it's painful. But how do we move on if we don't really understand how things, why things happen the way that we did? That's, that's so interesting that you use the language of forgetting as violence. Yep. That it's actually something that is made to happen, yeah. forced to happen. Exactly. Um, and sometimes we think that holding on to the memory is holding on to the pain. Um, but we don't actually see that forgetting is also pain. Exactly. Forgetting is violence. And pain is important. Right. Pain is super important. That's the only way we know something's not right, when you feel pain. And I think that um, there's this thing that I find unique about about Kenyans, and I think we, we don't ask questions because we're scared of the answers, and I think it's shifting. It's shifting slowly, and it's shifting um, um, in ways that, are, that make me encouraged about what, what, what we're going to... Because storytelling is how we can address these things, right? This book could have been a work of nonfiction, but it wouldn't have the impact if it was a work of nonfiction because when you when you tug on emotions and you tug on imagination, then you can actually get a, a kind of response at last, and that spurs people to action. In 2017, I was so anti because this book had been in my in my eyes was finished then and I wanted it to be to come out in 2017 because it was an election year and I didn't want to do the thing where I'm, I'm, I'm on TripAdvisor looking for, for tickets out any every other minute um, and I wanted a book that would shift something obviously very very like arrogant to me to think that one book would shift the way an entire country politics but it's one voice and it's one voice that is accurate and is and is true and 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 I I try to put all of my biases away and just tell the story in the way that it happened in the best way that I could. And, and the goal is just to stop forgetting everything, not just the violence. Um, it, it strikes me that there's no kind of memorial at Westgate today. And people died there. Like lives were completely shifted in those on that day on the 21st of September, was it? 21st of September? Yeah. But like, why is there no monument? I'm not saying that like we need to kind of spend every waking moment crying about what has happened in our past, but we need to remember because if we don't, it's going to happen again. Like what you said, the goal is not forgetting. Yes. 
That's that's hard work to do in this country because everything pushes you towards abandoning, yeah. abandoning, you know, important things. Yeah. Um, our time and our energy is spent kind of in an eternal present mm. where everything that is past is gone forever, <laughs> where the future does not exist. And like now. Yeah, and not realizing that the future is actually created by the present exactly. and the present is a product of the past. Of the past. And so I feel like being Kenyan in this moment means constant dislocation of time and memory mm -hmm. all the time. Yeah. Um, and when you couple that with the displacement of space, homes and people that happens in conflict situations, like people actually being chased away from their homes mm -hmm. and everything, then it's like we exist in this very fragmented um, and dislocated way yeah. where we... If we are not physically displaced from our homes, then we are displaced from our memories. Exactly. Um, <laughs> Should I put in a book? <laughs> Can we create the next one? Oh my God. Come on. <laughs> I'll write your, your, your back page for the next book. Um, yeah, and, and for me, that's, that's something that is very, very difficult to deal with. Yeah. This permanent sense of rootlessness and a low-level kind of permanent confusion mm -hmm. that I see playing out in our public life all the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so um, for me, the post-election violence happened at a very, very um, pivotal point in my life. Mm -hmm. I was 21. Mm -hmm. And a 21-year-old is, is a representation of a lot of things yeah. at a very, it's like a peak moment in kind of getting to know who you are and what you, your relationship with the world around you is. And um, I mean, I, I could say a lot of things about that time, but it was very transformational, that moment. Um, and some things in my life altered permanently because of the post-election violence oh. and had decades-long repercussions because I think of where I was in my life at that time. Mm. So where were you in your life at that time? I was... Also in my 20s, I was 23 at the time. Um, this was my first election. And I think the, the one prior, I could vote, but I wasn't in the country. I think I'd gone to visit my mom or something. So I wasn't here. So it was the first time I could vote and I was in the country. And at the time I was working at Rainmaker Limited, we had done a really like successful campaign called Umoja Pamoja <laughs> to like get um, uh, Kenyans, young Kenyans to vote. And we'd done all of this incredible work with musicians, getting them to write songs about voting. And that year, I remember... I felt specifically successful because this project that I had been such a part of, an integral part of, had gotten, like, that was the first year we'd gotten, like, um, what's the record-breaking numbers of the youth, youth turnout for voting. So it was so great because I felt like, oh, my goodness, like, my first election and I've done this incredible, I've been part of this incredible job or work that has gotten young people to express their voices. But, you see, nobody ever thought that, like, we, for us, the work ended on election day, right? right. We've done our work, guys have voted, great, right? No one thought about the aftermath. So I was sitting in a friend's house waiting for um, the results of this election, being very happy. I wanted to see how many young people actually influenced the way that the, the, viol uh, the, the election went. And I was sitting there when the, when the violence broke out, when the results were announced, and we were maybe 500 meters away from State House, and, and we didn't even hear the gunshots on out in the 
um, in the street. And so we had, we had them on TV first. And I was scrambling home. And at this point, I lived with my parents in Runda. So my, my, my life was not disrupted at all. By the, I, the biggest thing that I couldn't leave Westlands, I couldn't get as far, I couldn't pass Westlands to enter now, cross the highway and go see my friends in other parts of the city. Um, and I couldn't buy booze. And that was my biggest inconvenience. And that's the thing, like, and only now when I think about it, I'm just like, this city, like, things will happen. And depending on what part of the highway you live on, that's how you're affected. Right. And it's the same if you put, put it in time of a pandemic or, or of tribal clashes. It doesn't matter what's happening. But, like, that was what shocked me immediately because I, I think my then-boyfriend lived in Langata and I couldn't get to him because you had to cross too many cross highways. highways. And I'm just like, but we live in the same city and stuff was calm in the northern part of the city, but where he lived in, in the southern part of the city, it was just chaos. He was just he was hearing gunshots every single day for, like, a, about a week. And that completely, out of everything, out of the loss and the, and the, and the death and everything, that strikes me till today how the highway completely, highways are like borders in this, in this country. Right. Um, and that your reality on one side of the highway is really, truly different. Completely. In the completely. same city from yeah, someone you see, else. You watch the news and you're like, this can't be our country. <clears throat> the only reason why it was because you're seeing Gong Road. You'd, oh, that's cool. I recognize Gong Road. I recognize like, the city motorway and these places. And, and that, for me, was just um, one of the things that stuck with me. Even after the violence, I remember at some point I wanted to, to be part of it. So my sister and I went to... I think it was showground where they had set up um, temporary camps and we went to volunteer there and I, and I, I couldn't even deal with that because I'm just like there's, there's, there's wanting to be involved and then there's actually seeing what loss looks like on a large scale because there was a woman who tried to like um, pass off her baby um, so she could just kind of get some money to go bail out her sister from Langata Women's. So it was all of these stories that were kind of happening in real time in a country that was so broken but for, for us guys on our part of the world it's just like a very quiet December holiday that still just kind of shocks me even now that that we're able to that I'm able to continue working from home and and, and have a fairly undisrupted life while while other parts of the of the country are experiencing such loss from the pandemic is just it's shocking to me um, and it's it's a product of just decades of building a city along lines that are not ours and that we don't fully understand. Right. What what do you do with that feeling of of um, inequality? Yeah, that's been one that I that I deal with every day, and I think that um, this book is about politics, but it's also about privilege because we're all born with privilege. Anyone listening to this podcast now has privilege, and I don't think that I can't take away the privilege I was born with. I didn't ask for it. I, if you're born with, born with a golden spoon in your mouth, you can't. It's gonna be very hard to take it out. I think. So it's not really about like who has it and who doesn't have privilege. It's about what you do with it. Right. And, I, and that's where, where I think I find some kind of comfort. So I have all of these things that have been given to me because of where I live in Nairobi, because of who my parents were, because of where I went to school, because of things that may not have been in my power. Um, but I have, I'm spending my life trying to then use my work as my activism. My work with libraries is how I respond to that. Right. I, I may not have the loudest voice, but I have these skills that I can loan to libraries and then make public spaces mean something. I can write. Can I write a book that makes people reflect about how they treat their housekeepers and their drivers? Because it's not about elections only. It's about every single choice you make every day. Right. When you ask your housekeeper to stay an hour longer so you can hang out with your friends an hour longer, what are you? What, what do you mean? What do you know what, what that means for her? How is she going to get home? Who's feeding her kids? All of these things we don't really think about as middle-class Kenyans. And that's what I wanted. It's down to every single choice you make because the elections is like one of thousands of choices you make every every five years. But it's the small ones that mean something. 
Because if you begin to think about your housekeeper, every, every single thing that you do, thinking about those people who make your life easier, then when it comes to making big decisions about like who to vote for and how to vote, then that person, that, that their well-being remains the, the, in the forefront of, of, of your life. And that's what I try to do. I don't always succeed. Let me tell you, I've made some mistakes. And there are times when I've had um, views or said things, and I'm just like, that was so arrogant and ignorant and privileged of me. Um, but you've got to do the work, and you've got to... Um, kind of ask people the hard questions and, and be ready to take the feedback. I think that this book, um, one of the things that I did when I was ready to launch it is that um, actually Washuka, my co-founder, read it and read it very late in the process because I was so scared of, of getting people who I cared about to read it. Um, and the minute she read it, she told me you need to check your bias because there's things that you've said in the book that are that kind of you, you may not know that you're leaning in a certain direction, but, but your characters are. And so I found somebody who was as far as different like you know how you you know you sit in this lane and then you get someone on the other lane like a male like duo completely different background from mine i asked him please read this book and give me your feedback and he tore it to shreds and that is the reason this book is so important and i i, I, I know it's good i'm so proud of this work but it's because i had i had the i guess the the mind to get the difficult feedback early on because it wasn't a book that was about me, it was about Kenya. This is not something that I went through myself. And I really wanted it to feel um, authentic to every single person's right. experience. Right. I, hope, I hope it is. I hope it did feel that way for those who've read it. Um, tell me about the time. Let's talk about the craft of writing now. Mm. The time that it took for you to put this novel together. Um, what was your biggest, maybe most surprising thing mm. that, about writing a novel? Something that you were not prepared for? But once you are in the thick of it, you're like, wow, I didn't anticipate this would happen yeah. in the process of writing. Oh my gosh, there have been so many. And even now I'm in the process of like, because I feel like this is also a writing process, like having other people read it um, is part of the process. But I think for me, um, one, I didn't realize, I've always called myself apolitical. This is shocking that I would write this book as somebody who doesn't care about politics. Um, but, but as I was writing, the first draft was completely freestyle. Like I just sat for eight months and like went at it. Um, and it shocked me how many things from my childhood growing up in this country that were political specifically had stuck. So I was like one of the characters. My father made me read newspapers. Like I'd read them to him and I'd read them just for, for sport. Um, and, and then also, if you grew up in the 90s in Nairobi, you watched the news at 7 and at 9. There was no at Netflix or whatever, so you could escape the news yes. per se. Yes. So as I was writing all of these things, it shocked me how much had stuck about politics in the 90s. Because I was, I, was, I was writing people's names and their ministries and being like, how do I even know this? And that made me understand that I don't think it's possible for you to be of this country and be a political politics is in everything that we do, whether we want it or not. Um, that was one thing. The second thing was, and people say this all the time, that writers are vessels, and I've always rolled my eyes all the way to the back of my head when people see that. Because I think that people kind of romanticize it a lot. Um, it's hard work. It's hard, and anyone who's written has known that. Yes. But the thing about being a vessel, and the thing that, I, that shocked me the most, that there's moments when I would just sit and, and, and these people would speak through me. And I, I know it sounds like absolute hogwash right now, but it happens. Um, and it happens even now, more now that I'm having people read it and, and react to stuff. And like people would, would people extract a quote and put it on Instagram, and I'm like, I wrote that. And I'm going to be like, what is this? Yeah, I feel you. Yeah. I, know, I know exactly what you mean. And I'm just like, that, that is special. And, and that's how I knew that for, for real, something something um, magical happens when you hit your, your your stride and the words are flowing and that shocked me completely. Um, and finally, I think this phase, 
I was never ready for when people are reading it. Of course, you want, when you're writing something or working on any kind of art, you want people to like connect with it and to love it and to respond to it. But let me tell you, I did not imagine that the response would be this, um, that would resonate this much with Kenyans. Um, everybody who has read it has reached, most people have reached out to me. Strangers are sending me voice notes as they're in tears, read, going through the pages. And I really wish that it was a book that left people feeling happy and, and joyful and hopeful, but it's not, um, because it's not a hopeful thing I'm writing about. It's not a joyful thing I'm writing about. Um, and just that that level that I've had people who, in my opinion, are the strongest, most like Spunya men I've ever met being like, oh, I cried like a child and I do I can't believe you did that and, and like how did you even do that? And that's what I'm asking myself a lot now. Like, did I actually give myself the space I needed to, to recover? Because you read it once, but I I read this book maybe 30 times and right. I had to revisit those scenes maybe 30 times. And somebody asked me like what I did for my mental health after I was done, and I'm just like, I don't know, I just went, I accepted and moved on. <laughs> and I think I'm okay. The Kenyan way. The Kenyan way. Um but I, I completely know for a fact that writing is the thing I'm supposed to be doing. It's taken me a long time <laughs> to arrive at this point. Um, and I've always known that I, that I want to write. I just didn't know that I was able to write in the way that I'm, I have. Um, and that is the, the most, it's the most wonderful feeling to kind of have gotten it right the first time. My agent said to me um, two weeks ago that, the amount of growth, because she saw this book when it was a shitty fast draft. Sorry, mm. I don't know if I can, I, can, I can swear on this podcast, but she saw this book when it was crap. And she signed me then, and she said that the amount of growth I've gone through as a writer in my first book takes some authors four or five books to do. But you see, it took eight years to, to have that growth. And, and now I know I want to do it all the time. I know that I want my, my writing to feed all my other work. Cause in, 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 other, in the in the way it has been that my work feeds my writing. It has to be the other way around. Your writing must, my writing feed, must feed my work, exactly. Um, and I didn't know that I was this that, that I would I could do it. <laughs> I'm I'm surprised that, that we finished and I'm, that it's out. Um, and I'm incredibly proud of it. I'm and so write, incredibly writing proud. Writing is very hard work. It's hard, but there's if you know that you have this story inside you, there is a kind of inexplicable joy mm. when the story is out. <laughs> yeah, you know. When it's actually taken the form of words. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And the process, just to go back to your question, was very much like, at some point, the office where I used to work from in Cape Town looked like I was a detective, like, you know, string and post-its and like mapping things because I wanted, uh, the timeline had to be correct. The story takes place in the span of maybe 23rd of December to the 2nd of January. So it's a week, a week and some change, right? And a lot happens in a week and some change. Um, but it was just like getting all of these characters, timelines right, and making sure that they were where they're supposed to be for the story to carry forward. And like that process was the most journalistic process mm. I've ever done because I am a journalist, and what it's my, my first kind of training as a writer was as a journalist, and that was beautiful. I, and I wish I could take a, I took a picture of that wall because it 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 made sure that um, the story was true both geographically and um, just in terms of like the emotional truth as well. Um, and that, that I really enjoyed as well. I'm so glad that you shared that with us. Um, a lot of our listeners um, are people who are journalists, are writers, mm. are people who are in these creative spaces. And just to hear that this novel took eight and a half years to write. <laughs> um, but it, I mean, you see the work. Mm. You see the work that um, there was that care, there was that attention to detail. There was making sure that 
the timelines were correct, the locations were correct, yeah. the the time it takes to get from Narok to Nairobi was was yeah. correct, you yeah. know. Um, and I appreciate that level of care and meticulous detail. Thank you. So thank you very much for that. Um, I would like us to speak one more thing about the book and what the space that you see this story occupies in our life today, in 2020. Mm -hmm. This is something that, like you said, happened all the way 13 years ago. And we've decided as a country that we are not going to process this. Um, and what we are going to do instead is to kind of reverse engineer these events mm -hmm. to suit our our intentions for today. Mm -hmm. What I mean is that the political elite kind of draws onto these stories or this narrative and repurposes them for what they want to happen today. Um, and we've had a legacy of two or three more elections since then, yeah. when 2007 has been engineered in that way. Mm. How do you see us as a society right now, living in this propaganda soup or in yeah. this water where everything is basically... Um, I wouldn't say that it's it's about alternative facts, but it it really is about alternative narratives. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I I've often said I don't know if we've been in worse shape as a country, but also haven't been alive that long. I'm in my mid thirties now, and I've 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 I I kind of go back and forth between moments of intense hope and moments of intense despair when it comes to this country. I can't answer that question about why I see this book sitting because I think I'm too close to it and I think that I will always downplay the impact my work has because I, to some extent, I'm not ready for, for kind of the impact this book will have and I, and I know that I will, every day that I speak about it and every day someone new reads it, I, I will grow ready. Um, the thing that I want us to examine and examine all the time is just our choices because if everybody did that um, and on a very micro level, then it begins to create a ripple effect, Right. I don't have the answer to solving our government issues. I work really closely with the Nairobi County, and like, and like, no one, no one is more frustrated at, at certain points than than we are, because Bookbank exists to to plug a hole that is existing because the government has failed to prioritize libraries. So in a sense, I find myself really, really like in a point of like wanting to like shout about the in inadequacies of our leadership. But also understanding that I know people who are in a leadership and I know them personally and that Bookbank wouldn't exist if there weren't people who work in Nairobi County who care about their jobs. So I'm always very, very torn apart. I maybe can say that I have never seen the country in worse shape in my life. It probably has been before me, before, before I was aware of what was happening. But I really want this book to be the kind of thing that makes people see that every single choice they make um, affects the larger, the larger scope of things. Um, we need to address the way we choose our leaders. I don't know how. I don't have any answers. And that's a thing. That's a, that's a very frustrating thing. Like I can't. I can't. I don't know how to change the way we do elections. I read a lot about how this election was managed, and I know where the loopholes were from what was published, right? Right. But a lot of stuff isn't published, and nothing surprises me. Like you know, I keep saying like all of these shows we watch about like the way politics happen in different countries. Nothing. Nothing about that is fake because it's all drawn from like actual factual right. things, right? Right. So nothing surprises me, but I think that the one thing that will continue to surprise me is our resilience. I think the reason why we 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 so quickly accept and move on is because 
um, we're resilient and when we, we find holes and we, we find a way to like maneuver the holes and, and manipulate them to work for, for us as, as citizens and we, we've been very good at living with dysfunction that sometimes we don't know how to work with order when stuff is orderly we're like oh my god so confused but again I think it boils down to just choices and making choices that don't only reflect your interest but like one other even if it's one other person to start and then you kind of get better at it right yeah right I hear you yeah um, I'd like us to talk now about Bookbank. Mm-hmm. Um, you've alluded to it, and I would like to hear more. You're the co-founder of Bookbank, mm-hmm. uh, which is an initiative that restores, rehabilitates public libraries mm-hmm. in Nairobi. Um, where did it begin? Um, what's the work that you've done so far? And how does Bank Books, because this the Havoc of Choice was published by Bank Books, mm-hmm. which is the publishing arm yeah. of Bookbank. Um, tell us more about that. and. Okay. Um, a little bit about what it's like to not only have this dream and this work in public libraries, but also in publishing, mm. which is a really, really tough space in it this is. country. It is. Yes. Um, Bookbank is currently my favorite thing, to be honest, and has been for the last three years. Um, <laughs> so that, like, hoping I don't hurt my book's feelings, but it truly, truly has. Um, and we started Bookbank, Angela Oshuka and I, um, in 2017 or formally. It was, it was happening, it was existing in our minds well before that. In 2017, we started Bookbank with the sole purpose of restoring public libraries. And that's, we keep it as simple as that. We find a public library and we restore it. Um, we're working on three flag, flagship um, spaces in Macmillan in town on Banda Street. Um, Eastlands um, has two branches, one in Kalolemi and one in Makadara. And our approach to this restoration is complete 360. So not just the building, but what people do there, how they feel when they walk in, um, what kind of digital experiences they have, what what kind of, what do they do in terms of society and how they connect with the community in the spaces. And also the libraries are for are centers for learning and for reading and for literature. So it's been three years of my goodness, one, our first year was purely research. We just asked questions for an entire year. We spent hours in the library talking to users, talking to librarians. And the second year, we put art, because both Washuka and I have worked in the creative economy all of our lives, and the entire sustainability of these buildings rests on the creative economy because we don't see enough spaces for artists in the city. And we think that while we would love there to be a book bank for, for theatre and for galleries and for archives and museums, it's not going to happen fast enough. And we hope it does. But in the meantime, we want these spaces to serve all of those purposes. So can you come and create a space where filmmakers can, can know that they can screen their film any time of the year, where musicians can come and find a space to plug in and play a show, where writers can come and read their work to, to audiences? And so far, we've, we've just finished Kalolemi, our first branch, which is such a highlight for us because it's one thing to talk about the work, another one to actually do it. Right. Um, and we've done it. We've done it in a pandemic year. We've done it um, in a year that we've been able to create 30 jobs that didn't exist in 2019. Um, and that has been an incredible success for us. And then we just started our second branch in Akadari, which we haven't really spoken about publicly because we also like to shout when the work is done. Um, I think we get a lot of people talking about intentions and right. finish. So it's like, let's just make noise when we've done the thing we wanted to do. And, and, and hopefully next year we can touch the, the bigger branch, which is the most intimidating project of my life. Like, it's great that we have two others to kind of test out our model. Because none of us, are, we're not architects or librarians. I have no idea what, what we're doing. And we have, that's why we spend so much time asking questions. So we can make sure that we're truly building spaces that reflect the people that live around them and their desires. Um, and Bank Books is... is um, so Washuka and I had always known that when, when her time at Kwani ended, that, that that would leave a massive gap that that 
that someone had to fill. And I don't want to live in a city that doesn't have a vibrant literary scene. I'm a writer. So who am I writing for? If, right. if guys don't like what, what am I spending my life doing if people don't have a place to access my work? Right. So in that sense, it was always very deliberate to set up a publishing arm. And the thing is, even the 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 for-profit arm, which is what Bank Books is, was set up well before the, the trust was. Um, and our goal is to, to, once these libraries have been published, they will need a consistent flow of stories by Kenyans for Kenyans. And if we rely on bookstores as the entire ecosystem for these libraries, then we're not going to have writers making lots of money because I, I try to get the price point of my book low enough for it to make sense for the typical Kenyan. But with 16% VAT and all these other things that kind of bring the price up, then libraries become a really good place to distribute work. So these things, honestly, book bank, bank books, they all exist because we sat back and thought about what our writer needs to, as, a, as a vibrant ecosystem. And libraries are part of that. Publishing is part of that. And that's why they exist in the way that they do. Um, we, here at Baraza, we've had lots of questions from writers um, emerging and established. Mm. Um, at Baraza Media Lab, our mandate is to support the Kenyan media ecosystem. And writers have this question, are you going to help me get published? Yeah. You know? And I look around this city, and like you said, with um, the exit of Kwani, mm. Kwani was a iconic, huge, mm. huge part of what it was, um, what being a writer meant in this town. Yeah. Um, Kwani is the reason why I'm a writer. If it was not for Kwani, I would not have... I would have stayed with my science degree mm. and become a medical researcher. Mm. But Kwani, the, Kwani changed my life, Me basically. Too. Changed Me the trajectory too. of my life. And um, with Kwani no longer on the scene in this town, like you're saying, um, Nairobi needed and continues to need not just bank books, but many more. Many more. Um, many more. We yeah. need many more. Yeah. Um, and I really, we really, because right now we, we get that question a lot, can you publish me? And I pray, I wish for the day when that answer will be yes. But I think that um, well, Washuka is a qualified publisher and, and like she, she ran the production of this, of this piece. There's just a lot about the industry that needs shifting and needs disrupting. So we're actually wanting to disrupt everything. So everything that we, we, we keep finding ourselves falling into the traditional publishing space and then asking ourselves, why, why do writers need launches? Like, I haven't launched this book formally, but I'm just like, what is the point of having a launch? It's a cost point that is really, really like pricey to put on an event, but I'm just like, what is the intention? I didn't want to launch a book that no one has read because then you end up having a conversation with yourself. But even as we continue, I'm like, let's not do things because that's how they've been done, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the reason why we're hesitant now to take on new writers because this we've made our first two acquisitions. Mine is one, and in a few weeks we're going to be putting out Lupita Nyong'o's book, um, Sulwe, in English, Kiswahili, and Luo, um, to start. Um, and I think with those two, we want to just see how 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 can we change the way things have been done for the benefit of the writer. Because tell me, tell me in specifics two or three things that you think should change and that you want to to disrupt. Number one is how much writers got get paid. Um, I got a book deal in, in the UK years before I got this one. And I was shocked by the numbers, Christine. I could not believe that at that point, it was maybe five or six years of my life had been spent working on a product that someone's going to pay me 10% of royalties for. And I was insulted, obviously. Um, but then I had to like eat some humble pie and be like, okay, no one knows who I am as a writer. All the reputation I have in the city is as a, as a 
talent manager, as an event manager, as a project manager. Nobody knows my name as a writer. Fine. Secondly, um, like for the publisher who was coming from the UK, being like, that nobody was a really good story, we want to minimize the risk, right? Um, but I didn't, even when I tried to justify it to myself, I'm like, it's still 10% of, of like my school fees for grad school, for all of the rent I paid for all of these like years and years of working. And didn't make sense. And, and it's only later when I realized, you know what? I, well, I trust the UK publisher to do their job in the UK. I don't know if they can do this book justice here. And it's only because I had the benefits of waiting and, and kind of while we were editing the work, I realized I don't want anyone else to publish this book apart from a Kenyan publisher. And as you said, there, was, there wasn't anyone. Um, Kwani had exited the space and I couldn't find anybody else who would do, I guess, who had done work that I, that I was, that I was um, interested in. So I did, we put it up together ourselves. And we're like, we're going to do it ourselves because... Um, but I don't get paid enough. I think that there's a, there's a lot, there's a lot of like template copy pasting um, with everything from covers to marketing to there's no nuance around the way that a work of art is treated. Um, and I'm not saying we have all the answers now, but I think that everything that we're doing for for this book, we're taking notes furiously so we can begin to replicate it. Um, and I think finally, VAT. We need to abolish VAT on books. This is one of the countries that I think the top five highest taxes on books, and it makes no sense to me. Um, at 16%, there's no way we can make this book's price at the way that we need to for people to buy them and read them and enjoy them and pass them on. Right. Um, and if that's what I changed first, to be honest, I'm so angry <laughs> about the amount of tax we pay on books right now that if we change, like, I, I'd, I'd much rather change that before we even publish anybody else. Because right. otherwise the books are always going to be in the 2,000 shillings um, range. range. Wow. Yeah. I would love to have printed this book here. Every single thing about this book was done here apart from the actual printing because printing it here would again have driven the cost of 3,000 shillings while doing it in India um, guarantees you a price point and a quality that we couldn't find here and God knows I looked <laughs> like we looked um, and I think that these are all very big things like setting up the, the, the manufacturing space here for printing presses is a big thing right. it's a massive investment as is the VAT abolition right I think that's what disrupting means. It means doing the big work. Um, and I really want this to be the kind of like the blueprint for it. And then we're going to try and um, just shift it so that artists make more money. I'm so pleased to hear that. <laughs> um, and I know this is good news to a lot of people um, who have been wondering, what next? What, what do we do in a town without um, a vibrant publishing scene that yeah. is outside of school textbooks? Yeah, um, which is a whole other discussion. Whole other discussion. Oh my god. Um, I don't think we have time to no, go into textbook, the politics of textbook <laughs> oh publishing, um, okay. which yeah. is quite quite a big problem yeah. in in this um, in this space. Yeah. Um, so Shira, we are coming to the end of our discussion now, and I just want to say how grateful I am that you did this work. Thank you. Um, that you you committed to it and you actually made it happen. Um, it's, an it's an inspiration to me personally. Um, and I know it's an inspiration to many of us who are listening today. Um, the cover is gorgeous. Thank you. I love it. That is my sister's work. <laughs> this is so beautiful. <laughs> like No one understands, like, yeah, my sister is, she's our designer for everything, even at, at BookBank. Um, yeah. I wish I could clone her and share her with everyone. <laughs> um, so as we close, I want to ask you to read Ooh. something from the book for okay. us today. Okay. Um, if you could just uh, select a passage that you I think... I want to ask you to, to, if you have one in, in specific, I'll go to the beginning. 
one about Sundays that I really enjoyed. The beginning. The beginning. Yeah. First mm-hmm. chapter or somewhere in the... Uh, There's a section about Nairobi on a Sunday that I quite like reading. That's, the, that's a good one. Yeah. That's a good one. Great. Let me just find it. Oh, there, there we go. It's quite short. I hope it's okay. Please go ahead. <clears throat> Nairobi on that Sunday was an experience best savored by all senses. It was an explosion of color as families clad in their bright Sunday bests rode in polished cars and buffed matatus, making their way out of respective sanctuaries or to their relatives' residences. Hawkers who didn't care for the Sabbath stood at traffic lights, displaying their attractive treats, sugarcane, groundnuts, fruits, and newspapers to hungry commuters. It is a smell of fresh laundry, talcum powder, and whatever perfume was on sale at Tusky Supermarket. It was the taste of a quarter chicken and chips, roasted maize, stale alcohol, and the bad decisions of the previous night. It was the sound of children splashing away at public swimming pools, excited parents rowing boats at Uhuru Park, live jump sessions on lawns, parks, secret gardens and forests, gospel music in the morning, jazz at brunch, reggae in the afternoon, and golden oldies that match the golden sunset. It felt that, like the gods had rewarded hard-working Nairobians with a few extra stress-free hours on Sunday as a respite from city living the other six days of the week. I'll stop there. Thank you so much. That was beautiful. A very beautiful passage that <laughs> describes our lives on Sunday. Yo, you know, the most, Sunday the most precious day of the week. It really truly is, yeah. yeah. I used to miss, I still like... Sunday is just everything, in the city specifically. Wanjiru, where can people find this book? Um, this book is available in ha, internationally, actually. So in the UK, it's available from Jacaranda Press, which you can find Jacaranda Press online. It's also in India at Champaka Books as well. Um, so this is an international production. <laughs> um, you could go to my website, wanjirukwenange.com. I have a list of all of the stockists there. But if you're listening from Nairobi, it's available at textbook centers, both in-store and online. They have 11 stores throughout the country, and they're also distributing it to all major bookstores. So wherever you buy your books, go there first and ask them for it. If they don't have it, let me know, <laughs> and I will, make sure I will fix that. Um, and also, you can let me know via social media, obviously. I'm on Jiro Koinange everywhere um, on the social medias. So thank you so much for making the time to be with us today. Thank you for having me. I really um, enjoyed our conversation. I did too. <laughs> this was great. Um, this was the second episode of Baraza Sessions, where I sit down and talk matters, media, and society with different guests. And Wanjiro, thank you so much for making the time to be our second guest. Mm-hmm. Um, Keep listening for our next episode, which should come your way soon, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, Thank you. Again, my name is Christine Mungai, curator of Baraza Media Lab here in Nairobi.